Just how many places did that music go to in eight bars? When was it written, for heaven's sake? How many other pieces do you know that wrong-foot the listener like that? Well, it was written in 1680. It's a section of Henry Purcell's Fantasia for four vials. Number four in G minor, well, that's the key the piece begins and ends in, anyway. So what led 21-year-old Purcell to write music like this? With me to demonstrate their eloquence with bow and fretted string are the members of Phantasm, and to initiate us into the history of the English vile consort in words, Phantasm's founder and director, Lawrence Dreyfus. We're in St John's Smith Square in London at the Lufthansa Festival of Baroque Music. Lawrence, I first discovered Purcell's work for vile consort when they were set works for music A-level. And I seem to remember all those years ago that the received wisdom then was that vials had peaked in popularity. So what was Purcell doing being so contrarily anachronistic, lavishing his genius on these old-fashioned things? Is that actually true? It's true in part, uh, in that he was certainly trying to employ very old-fashioned techniques and really study the old masters uh, in a very serious way. At the same time, I don't think that we really can grasp the great dramatic genius at work in these pieces unless we are cognizant of the fact that he's trying at the same time to inject a kind of new Baroque passion into the fantasy at the same time that he's studying all the old devices as well. It's a fascinating combination, especially fascinating for someone who's 20 years old, has not yet reached his 21st birthday. So let's go back to the origins and the, well, when was the golden age? Perhaps we'll be finding out. The origins of the vile consort, and we're going to put Purcell's culminating achievement into context. Where does the English vile consort begin, Larry? Well, the early roots are, of course, in, in vocal music, when there really isn't a distinction fundamentally apart from dance music between played music for instruments and, and that for singers. And I think we have to turn to the innomine, in particular, to the fact that there was an obsession with about two minutes of music by John Taverner from uh, a mass of his, Gloria Tibi Trinitas, that led composers to write a host of pieces called innomines. Um, this was a piece originally in the Benedictus section of the Mass by Taverner, and it's a bit of a mystery why composers became obsessed with uh, this bit of music. It was a plain chant that we didn't actually identify or get identified until the 1950s, when Thurston Dart in this country and Gustav Rees in the States, about the same time, identified the, the missing bit and found this, this bit of chant in the Mass by Taverner. But I thought it would be useful to hear the, the chant first, played by Wendy Gillespie in Treble Vial. So if we now set it in the, the four parts that so transfixed composers of the 16th century and into the 17th, let's see what happens.
So you've just heard this plain song in long notes in the treble viol, and that initiates this entire tradition of these innominate pieces with this chant in slow notes. And what I'm hearing there is some very sensuous beauty being woven around a devotional theme. So are we talking about gestural music? Is, is there an element of showing what Taverner can do here? Yes, absolutely. Of course, that's part and parcel of, of all uh, Renaissance polyphony. But the interesting side of this is that with instruments, we start moving away from gesture that's just connected to words and start thinking about gesture in a more detached way. We start thinking about not just dance gesture, but gestures of face, perhaps, of body, um, groaning, a kind of feeling of general melancholy, and being able to combine these different kinds of expressions in, in new and exciting ways when words are not there. Well, we've got a wonderful example of all this from Robert Parsons now, haven't we? Yes, this is a wonderful, shocking kind of piece where Parsons takes some real chances with some very raw harmonies and dissonances right at the start of this uh, very striking instantiation of an in nomine. So we can tell that this is surely not music meant to be sung with all that, of these repeatedness. That is really and, and shocking. I could see from faces around me. I heard it at the rehearsal this afternoon, but it really makes you jump, doesn't it? And that's, I mean, this is a man born in 1535, and he died before he was 40. Yes. So we're talking Drowned about in the, the Trent River. <laughs> the middle of the 16th century. Somebody thought of doing that for an instrument that hadn't really been heard much in England before the beginning of the 16th century. So this is pioneering on, on every front. Well, how does he get to the end? Are we going to have some harmony and pleasantness? Well, it, in fact, Kate, he sort of gets a bit angry toward the end. There's a kind of almost angry religious zeal uh, and passion that comes uh, in these mocking gestures uh, toward the end of the piece. Let's give you the sense of the very end of this nomine. <laughs> children's playground, aren't we? Na, 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 na. <laughs> it's na, 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 really. There's no rest at all. So that's, that's quite a dramatic piece. And Robert Parsons was just a few years older than William Byrd. William Byrd loved that piece so much that he not only arranged it for keyboard, but he improved on it in his own fifth in nomine in five voices. So another conceit was to take a solemn text setting and absolutely transform it. And was this again, Larry, just to show that they, they could? 
It's interesting. I think it's a kind of transitional phase between beginning with words as, a, as an idea, as a topic of invention, and then taking it on and moving on to new instrumental realms that could not have been sung at all. In this piece, uh, Delacour by Parsons, we see in the original print in Cantiones Sacre a text actually in the beginning of the first and second sections of great lament. Lament, O wretched thou widow Babylon, I say. And this was the actual setting that we can hear in the second vial part. And perhaps we could try putting some words to that. Could yeah, we a bit, a bit that? of Sprechgesang now. I'm not singing today. Lament, O wretched, thou widow Babylon, I say. So he takes that, and then what does he do with it? Well, this is then spelt out in these points of uh, imitation, taking these themes successively in all the different parts, and then moving on to different themes. But let's perhaps hear the beginning to see how that functions. personify the widow, she is grieving and she is wearing serious widow's weeds but now something different Yes, it goes off an entirely different uh, tangent uh, by working through into almost country dances and all kinds of uh, different exciting dance figures, perhaps even hunting figures that seem to merge rather incongruously with uh, the material of the very opening Here's the very end of the piece
She's a very merry widow, isn't she? <laughs> that's absolutely fascinating. That, that's looking forward, too, with all those diminutions that you had towards the end. We're, we're heading for the end of the Elizabethan era, era already. Well, in fact, I mean, the diminutions are part of the whole dance culture, isn't it? We're country musicians, of course, are, are playing lots of quick notes to show off all the time, and it's that country fiddling quality that comes, I think, into this. Let's pause to hear Phantasm play In Nomine and De La Cour by Robert Parsons. Thank you. 
So we're hearing many different types of consort pieces already. The vile consort has only just got going. We've gone from in nomine, we've just heard some pretty bucolic dancing, and later on we'll have variations on a ground. In fact, we're coming to that right now. Larry, how did Elizabethan composers feel they had the freedom to go to such extremes? I mean, some of it's quite grotesque in a way. In a certain sense, I think that's absolutely right. The freedom is really because the words aren't there, and um, this was very much acknowledged in the day. Morley, for example, says 1597, he talks about the composer tied to nothing when you write instrumental music. He's free to add and diminish at his pleasure, and I think the pleasure is the key word here. There's a kind of hedonistic pursuit that goes on in the instrumental genres of this kind, certainly lots of spirituality as well, but uh, very much when the pieces are connected to the improvised traditions, then I think when we have composed music, we can end up with quite a riot. And, of course, the burgeoning printing industry led to a flowering of private music-making among the gentry. Absolutely. By the time we get to the early 17th century, uh, certainly the, the vile consort is able to exist in a very exciting way because it becomes the kind of home entertainment centre of the uh, early 17th century, having a chest of vials in a country house in an Oxford or Cambridge college uh, for taking out after dinner. Um, enjoying conviviality, both with singing and playing. Well, let's go on to a ground bass now. We're going to William Byrd, five years younger or so than Robert Parsons, and he takes a ground bass, which would have been perfectly respectable over eight bars. So let's hear the ground bass first. So it sounds like a very simple kind of bass line, if you will, that someone could improvise on above. But Bird is actually rather naughty uh, in uh, playing with this ground bass. First of all, he doesn't put it in the bass very often, but has it migrate all over the various parts. And secondly, he supplies very unusual and I think quite perverse harmonies for it. The ground starts in F and then goes to uh, G and then comes back to F at the end, but he uses the opportunity of moving to this neighbor note to come up with a rather raucous approach to harmonies that don't quite gel all the time. I thought we would play the, the beginning of the ground to hear how this ground is then harmonized in the first version. Queen's Good Night, and the next thing Bert does is to surround the ground with a, a set of unruly musical characters who just don't know their place. I think that's right. Let's hear that. Thank you. 
It's like one of those uh, Flemish paintings where the more you look at it, the more you can see somebody behaving rather badly in a corner, Bruegel or something. <laughs> a bit later, I'm being a bit anachronistic, I know, but that's what it, it's saying to me. There's a lot going on. What does Bird do to finish the piece? Goes into the, some glorious heights of tenderness. Well, quite right too. It's about time. <laughs> Very tender, rather Im- imploring, and yes, a little sacred note, ah, ha, ha, men, at the, at the end. But Bird did also love the artifice and conceit. I mean, this music was known as fancy music. Yes, I mean, fantasy, fancies, are really when one uses one's imagination, not tied to a ditty, to a text, and that allows you to do all kinds of things.
Queen's Good Night. Music by Bird, played by Phantasm. Sometimes in the instrumental works, what I find very striking is that Bird works with a very light touch in, in his uh, artifice, and that's very much clear in this Fantasia, two parts in one in the fourth above, that we're going to turn to next. This is a, is a wonderful piece that uh, starts with a, a normal imitative opening with all the parts contributing, but one doesn't really know, unless you're sitting and playing the first uh, two treble parts, that those parts are in canon, that whatever Wendy Gillespie plays uh, on, the, on the second treble viol part, I will come in three uh, beats later, if you will, and imitate at the fourth higher. So the entire part, all the way through, is derived in this canonic way. Now, you'd think this would be very fussy and, and very uh, much conceited, a kind of uh, showing off. But in fact, it's very, very natural and elegant. And... Uh, quite an exciting, beautiful uh, opening. So whatever she plays, I will just copy exactly at the higher fourth later on. But later, Bird does something quite outrageous and brings in a popular tune, again, very different from this kind of very gorgeous sacred style. Unlike in sacred music of this time, the composers, particularly Parsons and Bird, start introducing popular elements, and Bird goes quite far in introducing a popular tune, sick, sick, and very sick, sick and liked to die, the sickest night that I abode, Lord have mercy on me. He then moves after this into this high-kicking dance, which you'll hear afterwards. Indeed, well spotted. <laughs> the high kicking dance for showing off. Do pavins and galliards always have to go together? I've never asked anybody this before. But that's they a very often on do. Its own. They do. They don't have to you know, in the English repertory. Pavins being a very stately slow dance, um, very much part of uh, courtly culture uh, as well. But in the instrumental repertories, they start ever more uh, to go together as a kind of alternating pair. So far, we're very consistent with this repertoire as this juxtaposition, sometimes deliberately and rather delightfully awkward between the sublime and the vulgar. 
I mean, you get the impression that one class of people would perform half a piece and uh, the rabble come in and take over the, the instruments and play the rest. But we are now going to move on um, to music by Orlando Gibbons, born in 1583. So he's nearly 50 years younger than Robert Parsons, and he lives through to the reign of Charles I. So we are moving into a different gear here, a different mood altogether for the Vile Consort. And I'm going to hand over to you, Larry, because you've chosen an in nomine, another in nomine by Gibbons, that's possessed you, you said, and fascinated you for a couple of decades. You've called it a five-minute masterpiece. So I want you to deconstruct it. I'm sitting back in my chair, and it's your turn. Well, I'll try to say a bit about it. I mean, I find myself locked um, into this amazing, tragic world that uh, Gibbons has been able to create with this piece. And uh, even though I've played this for 20 years, I don't think I've ever really cracked it completely. I, I'm sure it's music that's better than it can ever be performed. Um, but I think what's very striking is it's a great pinnacle of the Anomine uh, tradition. Um, all viol players uh, love it in, to pieces. Um, and I think it really has to do with a kind of special form of lament that, that Gibbons was able to exploit in the most touching way. Um, the piece has these chains of lamenting fourths of sound like this. And it's as if there are these chains of laments that are constantly heard, and as if there's this heavy burden being dragged across the, the tonal expanse. And Gibbons allows for very few cadences, very few punctuation points, as if there's a kind of recursive act of mourning uh, going on here. And it, it relates to other bits of English music, of course, this lamenting figure. One hears this in, in Dowland's famous song, Flow My Tears. But it is absolutely striking, partly because this theme is syncopated um, in a very unusual way against the beat, as we'll hear uh, in this opening section from the Anomine. And this section just carries on with this endless, sad, lamenting quality. And finally, it comes to a head, interestingly, when the theme meets its inverted alter ego in the form of a happy pavin. Let's try to hear, instead of... We move to... In this pavin figure in the middle of the piece. Thank you. 
From then on, there's this kind of fantastic swirling motion. Gibbon seems to be able to go up and down at the same time. Finally, there are these amazing ascents which seem to swirl forever upward. Quite an ecstatic kind of um, rising figure all the way through in this latest version. He seemed to have worked on this piece uh, for a good long time. So as we just heard, there are these wonderful spirals going upwards and ascending forever in this kind of miraculous fashion. And finally, this leads into the very last section uh, where the lament is able to be resolved into the major mode. He takes the falling figure from the beginning and finally resolves it to a major chord to end the piece. Let's try to do that last section. There's not much instrumental music, I think, that's greater than that from Jacobi in England. Or from any period, really. I'm listening to it just as, as, a, as a listener, and I'm hearing all sorts of elements that we've heard before. The solemnity, the devotional in nomine, and these amazing spirals going endlessly upwards. It sounds very modern. But it's a piece that looks inward. It's not a piece that you play and smile cheerfully over the top of your vial at your colleagues when you're playing. You're, you're, you were all very serious about the way you approached that, although the music often moved very, quite skittishly. It's not really skittish. It's a kind of inward turmoil, rather. It's, yes, it's I think a that's whole different, right. um, whole different. It's a completely different emotional language. It's a language, of course, that avoids... Um, that 16th century kind of frivolity in a quite intentional way. Now you've said before that, that Gibbons was writing in the most elevated instrumental genre of his day. So was this a peak moment for Vile Consorts? I think one has to see it that way. Uh, it, it seems with the Anomaly in particular, one is always summing up the tradition in some way. And right through to Purcell, people are looking backwards and seeing uh, a great... Uh, a great monument to the instrumental art form uh, that they can delve into and develop. And was it a, an exclusively English thing? Yes, in nominees, exclusively English. No one no. else did them. Well, what's fascinating about this period is just as uh, people on the continent were giving up on counterpoint, moving to pure Baroque expression, going into uh, a different interest in, in harmony and in verticality, if you will, um, the English were by and large, in specifically in these genres, keeping up and, and developing and, and nurturing these, uh, this style with lots of love. And uh, it goes right through to, to Purcell, in fact. Well, we'll get to him in the end. But meanwhile, a piece that's very dear to Lawrence Dreyfus, 
Let's hear the whole of that in nomine by Gibbons to appreciate why.
Music of matchless subtlety by Orlando Gibbons, played by Phantasm. You're listening to Discovering Music on BBC Radio 3 with me, Catherine Bott, talking to Lawrence Dreyfus and members of Phantasm are demonstrating the glories of the English viol consort. We're going to move on now to a composer who's nine years younger than Gibbons, and he overlaps with Henry Purcell. He lives until 1678, by which time Purcell is a teenager. John Jenkins. Larry, how does he fit into the great English vile tradition? Well, Jenkins is one of our favourites. He is someone who develops a, a kind of inveterate style of counterpoint that is absolutely a marvel. This is absolute pure democracy in action, uh, since every member, there is no first violin, and there is no uh, viola part, if you will, uh, in this kind of music. And he keeps points of imitation going in the most miraculous way, and particularly in the five-part consorts that we're going to uh, play. What's really striking is the, the kind of just energy and busyness that is going on um, all the time. Um, he's a real master of, of great sound. Well, he was a busy chap, wasn't he? Because Roger North, the writer on Musical Matters, said that Jenkins passed his time mostly in the country at gentlemen's houses. So he, one imagines him just knocking out another fantasy for the, the gentleman to play. He wrote an enormous amount of consort music. And was Huge he writing amount. for his hosts? He was, we think he was writing mostly for his hosts. But I think it's fair to say he was writing for posterity. I think he, re he recognised his quality and recognised what he was able to do. I mean, he was a particular master of euphony, as I like to say, and a love of misplaced accents um, uh, in this crazy democratic world. Well, let's, uh, let's hear some Jenkins. Uh, he goes to numerous exciting places, doesn't he? Yes. I mean, I think the regions that one hears, one hears him as a kind of master of harmonic regions. We can perhaps hear the, the substructure of these regions if we play just the opening not play the opening of the piece, but rather the chords that underlie it. So, for example, he begins in G major, and then, after a while, will then modulate to E minor, and then to C major, and finally to F major. Thank you very much. And what's fascinating is in each of these regions, you're sort of at home for a while, and he starts migrating. Uh, the term at the time was a kind of transit of keys, transit of regions, and it does have a feeling of perhaps country-like travel to it as well, along some quiet lanes.
what this is reminding me as a, as a singer who loves singing with vile consorts, the pleasure of sitting right in the middle where Emilia is sitting there with vials to the left of me, vials to the right of me, and I'm basically another vial. I just happen to have some words, but I've got to decide when to come in. And the unsettling thing about this repertoire is that sometimes when you are right, your entry is in a strange part of the bar, which is not plausible when you look at it. When you're right, you think you're wrong, and I'm afraid vice versa. So you had an idea this afternoon, Larry. We're going to, Phantasm are going to play to the end of the piece and everyone's going to try silently to keep time and we'll see how we do. Yes, this is from the next Phantasm. We're going to play number 15. It's, very, it's almost impossible to predict which beats will be strong and which weak, but do give it a go and see if you can uh, tap it out. But don't please try to get us off. It's bad enough. <laughs> How did you do? <laughs> I hope not terribly well. <laughs> We've got to move on to another composer because I'm worn out with Jenkins. Is he the most challenging vile composer to play or is there more to come? He certainly is the most uh, challenging in the rhythmic metrical sense. Um, another real challenge is um, William Laws, who one has to mention as uh, a great madman, a great friend of Charles I, uh, but in his five and six part consorts in particular, uh, he, he does the most bizarre things, goes against all the rules, um, can do things in the most beautiful manner, uh, but uh, takes chances in the most experimental way. Another Let, kind of challenge. Let's hear something. We thought we would play from um, a pavin, which is a very, very beautiful, pure pastoral uh, sunshine, uh, but laws can't seem to refrain from melancholy and outrageous uh, dissonances, really the most heart-rending kind, which cast these kinds of doleful shadows on the pastoral landscape.
That's another gasp-making moment in the middle of that, isn't it? Yes, indeed. One plays this music at first and says, these notes are all wrong. And then one discovers this is precisely the personality of this chap. He's also someone who loves playfulness, and uh, no one seems to have told Laws that vials belong to these soft instruments, uh, together with recorders. And uh, he often goes into a kind of raucous play and Dionysian uh, frenzy. Um, and I think that shows up very well in this air uh, in F major. <laughs> indeed. But we're going to come now to Henry Purcell, whose Fantasias for Vile, written as a very young man, just barely out of his teens. They've got the heart-rending dissonances that we've just heard from Laws, and they've got something of the zany, but it's much more integrated into a, an emotionally cohesive whole 
that's my take on it, and uh, we're going to deconstruct Fantasia in, in, in full in a minute. What makes his vile music unique for you, Larry? Well, I think there, I think there is this synthesis of the, of the past uh, combined with this great dramatic genius uh, that is, allows him to make these fantastic pronouncements of melancholy, but he does make a, a really place a very personal stamp uh, in a quite shocking way sometimes uh, on this whole tradition. He allows uh, different tempo changes uh, to uh, come directly into the fantasy, basing himself a bit on Matthew Locke, but doing something, as you say, which brings everything into one emotional world, which is uh, quite exciting. Can we just uh, stop a minute to talk about the instruments he was using? At the very beginning of the programme, we, we mentioned that vials were pretty old hat by then, mm. by, by 1680. And there are, therefore, some writers and commentators who think that these pieces were just technique-sharpening exercises, studies. Uh, so where was the vial at this point? Had it reached its highest point of development or even popularity? It had passed its peak by this time, it's fair to say, but there were still pockets of, of interest uh, in the Inns of Court in London, um, in, in Oxford in particular. Uh, people were still collecting this music um, avidly and, and playing it. Um, there were still chests of vials um, spotted around the countryside as well. So had the instrument uh, stopped being developed? I think it was played more as a bass instrument. Uh, Pepys is still playing the vial uh, when he comes home. Uh, but consort playing, it's fair to say, was, was probably... Uh, very much on the, on the wane, or a more arcane pursuit at this point. And so there were, no, there were no refinements, there were no extra frets or extra pegs or anything that were going to be added. The vial, the vial was the vial by then. The vial was the vial, this bowed string instrument with frets that are movable, um, with underhanded bowing, unlike the violin family instruments, uh, where the, the push stroke on the vial is still the main, the up bow is the main stroke. Um, and one has to use one's finger on the hair as a kind of volume control um, in a rather different way from the kind of brute force that you need to apply on the uh, violin family instruments. I think there was still a, a difference in, in attitude. But I think Purcell is writing for the ages here. Um, he's not thinking so much of, uh, of people that are, can play this uh, at a concert, um, but rather of what he's contributing to the great tradition. How do we know that he meant them for vials? Well, I think... It's just, uh, he, could, he could perhaps uh, have written them for violins as well, but I think in this case, it's music like Bach's Art of Fugue, where the medium is not the message. The message is in the genre, and the message is in the depth of the music, and in that way, he sums up the entire tradition in the most fantastic way. Well, I'm going to talk us through a whole piece now. We're going to listen to Fantasia Number 4, which is the one... We began the programme with that extraordinary section in the middle. And one thing the Fantasias have in common is that they begin with a lone voice. So let's have the opening. The opening theme is played by each voice in turn, and they overlap and repeat at different speeds. A very good example is the voice that comes in third, the highest one, and you'll hear the original tune being played suddenly at half speed.
So we think we know where we're going with this piece. It's smooth, imitative writing. It's rather inward-looking and beautiful and contemplative. Let's go on. it comes to an unresolved but obviously deliberate stop perfectly well ordered and then we're off again in a minute to a different world altogether and at this point I think one of the things which makes us able to say with confidence that we really do know that these weren't written as exercises is that Purcell actually writes in a few stage directions the next section is marked slow That's the middle section of the Fantasia, the one we heard at the beginning of the programme. And the change of mood is like someone suddenly remembering something that casts doubt on the whole meaning of his life. So is it any wonder that the response to that very disturbing thought has to be, in Henry Purcell's words, his stage directions again, brisk, snap out of it. forced merriment perhaps but musically it's on the same principle as the grave and thoughtful opening of the piece with each voice visiting the main theme in turn in whole or in part so we go on to the end of the piece Once again, consistent with this repertoire, there's madcap antics again. But this time, Purcell's showing off nothing but the truly democratic independence of each of the, the four voices in that piece. To me, as a singer, it has an intensely dramatic character. What it reminds me of, rather, is the mad songs that were so popular at this time in the theatre. 
because you would often get a reflective beginning, recitative-like beginning to these, these mad songs where the woman, and it's nearly always a woman, sets out her plight and then displays her madness in flurries of, of coloratura. But the best mad songs, you think of Purcell's own mad best, Bess of Bedlam, the best mad songs are never less than completely emotionally involving. Lawrence, am I being sentimental? No, I don't think so at all. I, mean, I think you're being Good. very historical and, and very um, emotive, and correctly so. I mean, there's this thought I've had that, uh, that Purcell may have read what Thomas Mace had to say precisely about this repertory about four years before Purcell wrote them. And it's a very stirring uh, text where he writes about what we had for our grave music and fancies of three, four, five, and six parts, all of which he writes were so many pathetical stories, rhetorical and sublime discourses, subtle and acute argumentations, so suitable and agreeing to the inward, secret, and intellectual faculties of the soul and mind, that to set them forth according to their true praise, there are no words sufficient in language. Yet what I can best speak of them shall only to say that they have been to myself and many others as divine raptures. So there's quite a lot there. But we're still experiencing, I think. Yeah, we, we've had all of that um, today. But is this repertoire the absolute culmination of the English Vile Consort? Did it go anywhere after these masterpieces, or was it a full stop? Absolute full stop until the 20th century revival, um, to which we're the uh, lucky inheritors. Well, I've really enjoyed getting to grips with sublime discourses, acute argumentations, but especially the divine raptures. We've got time for a little question and answer. I know that you've all got things you want to say, and there's a lady in the front row straight away. Thank you. Well, Miss Bolt already touched on this, that how do we know that Purcell wrote the fantasies for Viol? And they sound beautiful, and I'm looking when played like. But Purcell was a court composer, and he had a band of violins at his disposal, and also it keeps being mentioned that these were exercises, very beautiful exercises. Is it not possible he actually wrote these fantasies for a violin band? I can't imagine a violin band coping with uh, the difficulties uh, of the counterpoint um, on this kind of compositional level. And if there were mere exercises, why would there be this incredible uh, depth and these uh, performance instructions all over the place? I mean, one can debate this point, I think, legitimately um, as historians. But I can say, in order to play this music, I mean, I think that the viols are really the very best in terms of the tradition in which he was working, where the transparency of the parts is so clear. And being able to really hear inside the texture uh, in this way seems to me uh, the only way to do it. But then again, I'm a viol player. And we have only time for one more question, I'm sorry to say. Gentleman there in the short-sleeved shirt. If these fantasias were written for violin, which we were just talking about, what tradition would they belong to? It's a very good point. I mean, the only tradition they belong to is the tradition of uh, Bird through Matthew Locke, and this is what Purcell was obviously studying, and, and really seriously. The very sad fact is after the four-part fantasies in the autograph man manuscript, there, of course, there's a page that is entitled Fantasies of Five Parts. And unfortunately, he only wrote one famous fantasia upon one note. But he intended, of course, to continue with this. But perhaps because there was no real market for it, I mean, he did desist and give up. Alas. 
Well, no time for any more questions just at the moment, but I suspect that we'll all be together uh, in, in bars and restaurants later on discussing this <laughs> for the rest of the evening. I'd like to thank the audience for being such a responsive, keenly alert and appreciative audience, and I would like in turn, audience, for you to thank the members of Phantasm Treble Vial players, Lawrence Dreyfus and Wendy Gillespie, Emilia Benjamin playing tenor vial, and bass vial players, Mikko Perkola and Marku Luolian Mikola. So we'll end with a complete performance of this masterpiece by Henry Purcell, which incorporates so many technical devices, but is nonetheless a deeply emotional piece of music. Phantasm play his Fantasia No. 4 in G minor. <laughs> 